stay hungry, stay foolish. Before we kick into episode two of Gorillas Can Dance with Shamin Prajantham, I want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded tools and products and services to empower businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check them out at hellozai.com. And don't forget, sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter, and you'll be in with a chance to win a copy of this brilliant book. So much research has gone into this, and it will bring your innovation, startup partnering efforts to life. Let's get into episode two with Shamin Prajantam. Today's book is about one way in which large corporations can be entrepreneurial by partnering with startups. Specifically, it's about the key principles and practices that have been distilled from our guests research. To be clear, as our audience knows well by now, opening an innovation lab here or there and organizing a hackathon will not make an impactful result. This is about substantive programmatic interventions that could ultimately underpin a more fundamental change, a more transformational innovation within an organization. This book tackles corporate partnering in three parts, the why, the how, and the where. In part one, our guest gave an overview of his 15 years of research that involved over 400 interviews with corporate startup managers, startup entrepreneurs, and other individuals involved in partnering with corporates and startups. And also in part one, he introduced some of the key players who paved the dance floor for Microsoft Gorilla to be able to dance with startups. In part two, we will explore the why. Why do you do this in the first place? It's a great pleasure to welcome back for part two, the author of Gorillas Can Dance, Lessons from Microsoft and other corporations partnering with startups. Shamin Prashantam, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Aidan. I really enjoyed the first part and I'm looking forward to uh, this conversation as well. And I can tell you, Shamin, so many of our audience I've told about this book have gone out and bought a copy, but they're so happy to, that you're doing this episode and particularly the in-depth episode. Today, we're going to cover the why and I want to dive straight into it. And we'll only cover the why so everybody can really take it in and let it seep in today. So I thank you again for joining us for part two. So with the why, you call this, the subtitle, if you will, is co-aligning with strategy. And you start off here by saying why entrepreneurship matters for large corporations deals with the imperative for partnering with startups in the first place. And I'll prime, I'll prime you, I was going to say I'll prime your pumps here, but I'll pave you for the dance floor. You know what I did there. With a, with a great excerpt here to tee us up. You say corporations need to be entrepreneurial in order to renew themselves in the face of fast changing environments. In the face of disruption, some of which may emanate from startups, large corporations have the opportunity to collaborate with them. There is scope for these very different sets of organizations to combine what each is good at corporations efficient use of existing resources and capabilities with startups agile development of new capabilities and ideas in a way that is consistent with the corporation's 
strategic priorities. I thought that would be a great way to get started to give this bird's eye view of why you would engage in startups in the first place. Thank you for that very excellent um, introduction. So I think one of the things to be clear about from the get-go is that anything that a company does to try to be more entrepreneurial, which includes engaging with external startups, should very be clearly be viewed as a means to an end rather than an end uh, in and of itself. Uh, you know, one of the big uh, complaints that people have about this sort of activity, uh, very often uh, a, a phrase you hear is innovation theater. You know, so there's this sense in which there is, it sounds great to be able to say you're partnering with startups and you have a great uh, demo day or whatever, uh, but uh, it really doesn't mean very much. It's the sort of impression one gets. and. Uh, or, or the, the sort of complaint one hears. And I think what that reflects often is the fact that there isn't a clear uh, thinking behind why one is doing all of this. So, so that is the starting point. And as you read in the excerpt, and as uh, many of your guests and you yourself have written about, uh, you know, companies in this very fast-changing environment have a lot of things that they need to uh, consider to be more agile, to adapt to changing demands from consumers, changing technological landscape. There is this uh, sense in which companies could be disrupted. Uh, and so um, being entrepreneurial is therefore something that matters for organizations of all shapes and sizes. In fact, I um, teach. Uh, part of the core course on the MBA program at my school on entrepreneurial management. And ours is one of the business schools that has chosen to uh, have that subject as one of the core courses, meaning irrespective of what you're going to do uh, with your MBA as a student, you know, uh, and it's a relatively small proportion that actually end up uh, founding startups after an MBA. We still believe everybody needs to have that exposure because being entrepreneurial is relevant uh, for all organizations. And I, and I use the word organization advisedly. So I'm, I'm not even companies, you know, even nonprofits and so on. So I think that's the basic starting point because we live in a world in which the environment is changing so fast, there's need to be very responsible, adaptive and agile. That's the overall starting point. Uh, and of course, for companies, it's very often the fact that there's uh, new sources of competition. Uh, you know, the business model they've had that's been working so well is now no longer uh, working as well. Something needs to be done and you need to be more entrepreneurial. Fantastic overview, Shamin. And we'll go deeper into why Microsoft as well as the episodes emerge. But I wanted to jump into one specific role combination, you call it here of the different kind of combinations or collaborations or uh, configurations that an organization can look at when they're engaging in startups and partnering together with startups. And you say there are three major roles or combinations that we should consider managers versus entrepreneurs, managers as entrepreneurs and managers with entrepreneurs. 
perhaps you'll take us through these and I might interject with some great quotes because uh, you pepper this with some brilliant writing. And I just don't want our audience to miss this as well. Of course, by the book and behind you, you, me, you'll see two copies of the book. One is up for grabs on the innovationshow.io newsletter. But please do buy a copy of the book. And when you do leave a review, leave a review on Amazon as well. It really helps the author, it boosts the algorithm. And of course, we live in this algorithm society. And with that, Shameen, over to you to perhaps introduce the idea of managers versus entrepreneurs. And I loved here how uh, Howard C. Stevenson of Harvard Business School, who introduced the entrepreneurial management course for the first time in the 1980s, put it, you mentioned him in the book, he said, entrepreneurs differ from managers in that their starting point is an opportunity, not resources. I absolutely love that it totally frames the mind of the differences here between management and entrepreneurs over to you. Uh, exactly right. And so I mentioned how we teach this course uh, on the MBA at my school. And I start basically with Howard Stevenson's uh, view on how entrepreneurs, uh, or what entrepreneurs do is different from what uh, sort of the classic managers do. And exactly, as you say, the starting point for the entrepreneur's opportunity. Uh, and as uh, startup pursue new opportunities, what that means in turn is that they sometimes redefine the rules of the game. So, uh, you know, a lot of this, of course, has, uh, has to do with business model innovation. It could be the same products being sold to the same market, but just being done differently. Uh, with the first dot-com uh, boom in uh, the late 1990s, this is what gave rise to companies like Amazon and so on. Uh, you know, they were selling books to consumers of books, nothing new there, but how they did it was different. And they were pursuing this new opportunity. And that in turn disrupted uh, the uh, existing industry. And, you know, Clayton Christensen, uh, the late uh, professor at Harvard, who's written a lot about disruptive innovation, talks about how uh, startups can be a disruptive force to big companies. Now, of course, I don't want to uh, overstate the threat that big companies face or, or to suggest that they are not resilient. Many big companies are still around. Many big companies have weathered uh, various storms that they've faced, but they've had to do so. You know, it's taken some doing, uh, and a lot of that threat comes from these entrepreneurs who are pursuing new opportunities, very often with business model innovation, and that then uh, becomes one of the important threats to the managers in the big companies who therefore feel, you know, um, business as usual is not going to cut it anymore. And so that's why uh, I think that distinction between managers and entrepreneurs uh, that Howard Stevenson offered is useful in, in many ways. And as a starting point to say that managers on, in the inside of big companies can face considerable threat from entrepreneurs and startups on the outside. And this will speak a lot to as you know, to many of our audience as well, who work in innovation in legacy organisations, because oftentimes they're seen as the threat as well. And the corporate immune system is actually these managers that you talk about. And oftentimes, that's a lack of knowledge. And lack of knowledge triggers fear and fear comes across as resistance. Maybe before we move on to management as entrepreneurs, you have some views on that, because of all the interviews and all these brilliant authors I've had on the show over the last six years, the biggest thing it's given me is empathy 
for the resistor because the resistor is often doing it from a place of fear. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it cuts both ways, as you're saying. Um, From the startup's point of view, uh, you know, the the managers and the big companies can seem like a threat. Uh, There's no doubt about it. But for the managers in big companies, uh, you know, there is a sense of... uh, of, of fear in terms of what's coming at them uh, and what's new. And, and this, is the, this is really that starting point that we were talking about earlier as well. You know, the need to be entrepreneurial, I think, is something that big companies are recognizing. But, you know, that can also reveal a sense of panic even <laughs> in, in some cases. Uh, incumbents uh, are, are being pushed very hard uh, to be relevant in a world that's uh, changing rapidly, I think digitalization was a major driver of the of the need to be uh, to to uh, make adjustments and modifications. And when you you know it can be overwhelming, it can and it can be a cause of of fear. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right. I think going forward, sustainability challenges is also kind of like that. And when you see the enormity of the challenge, that too can can stoke fear. But hopefully. Uh, as we continue with the discussion, people will also recognize that there are things they can do uh, to try to deal with the situation as we're uh, as we're about to move on to. Yeah. And this is one of the wonderful things about your book is that it is educating people for making those decisions, but also to decrease resistance across an organization as well. So we'll move on to managers as entrepreneurs. And again, I'll pave the dance floor for you here with a great quote from the book. You say the challenge of disruption does not arise because large corporations aren't good at what they do. It is precisely because of it, as Clayton Christensen said, as you know well, as the late Professor James March of Stanford University noted, companies are engaging in two types of activity. And we've covered this many times in the show, this duality that exists in today's business world. One is exploitation that involves leveraging current capabilities to do what the company is good at in the first place. And two is exploration. And that is about developing new capabilities to pursue new activities, or ways of doing things building that capability for the future. And you say typically, corporations become really good at exploitation. And because this contributes to economic successes, managers tend to focus primarily on this, they're rewarded on it, they're remunerated it. And they're recognized on exploitation, not so much exploration. This arises as a problem within the organization. And we need managers, as you say, to be entrepreneurs. Exactly. And I'm sure this is something that uh, your audience will readily relate to. And as you said, uh, it's something that frequently comes up on your show. I think that's really uh, at the heart of uh, what's making people so interested in corporate innovation, uh, exploitation, and by the way, the, the term may have different connotations in other contexts. It, it has no negative connotations in management research. Exploitation is simply uh, the utilization of existing capabilities. Uh, and that's the part that the companies, uh, you know, sort of perfect over time. And then you have a well-oiled machine and these managers, as Howard Stevenson says, manage resources that they control optimally. And in fact, a lot of what we teach on the MBA, to be honest, is is about that, you know, Uh, and that's actually very important. 
but um, you know, as the environment changes, um, there's need for adaptation. I think people understand this very well. Uh, there is the need for exploration, but you know, people understand that intellectually. Actually, doing that uh, is challenging, and this is, of course, where being more entrepreneurial uh, is important, and that's where this idea of manager as entrepreneur. Uh, becomes especially important uh, because uh, it takes extra effort. You know, you can think about uh, being entrepreneurial in many ways, but three key dimensions that have consistently come up in research is uh, proactiveness, innovativeness, and risk-taking. Uh, and I might ask, add not blind risk-taking, you know, risk has to be calculated, it has to be shared, it has to be managed but it has to be accepted that there's some level of risk. And so managers being proactive, uh, innovative, meaning creative, thinking outside of the box, uh, and willing to take some degree of risk, this is what makes managers more entrepreneurial. And for several decades now, a lot of uh, attempts have been made to try to uh, systematize this somehow. Uh, you know, one of the well-known anecdotes of intrapreneurship is from 3M, where the sticky post-it notes came about because of a sort of an accident of an adhesive that went wrong. But <laughs> you had a couple of entrepreneurs who uh, uh, persisted to find some some solution for this. And 3M is well known for having tried to institutionalize uh, entrepreneurship by letting people in the company have 15% of their time to work on projects uh, of their own that are relevant to the company. Google then adopted that idea, said 20%. Gmail was one of those 20% projects. And so trying to do this has been something that companies have, have been aware of. Uh, and I think is one, it's, it's actually very important. Um, some people scoff at entrepreneurship a little bit, you know. Uh, and again, it's one of these things. Yes, many companies pay lip service to it, but you also have examples of companies that do take this seriously. I loved how you phrased the term entrepreneur. It's a it's a phrase that comes up quite a bit and, and oftentimes it's misunderstood. And you say typically it takes entrepreneurs to facilitate the entrepreneurship of others by initiating and running various programs. Such individuals need to have a good understanding of both the external environment and the internal realities such as politics that we all know well that provide both resources and constraints. And it's this constant duality that I see throughout business world today, where you have exploit, explore, you have the internal resources and external realities, all this type of environment is totally changing. And you go on to say here, organizations with a culture that makes entrepreneurs feel empowered and valued are more likely to remain competitive in the face of discontinuous change. And there's two examples that you give here that I absolutely love. One is Kapil Kane uh, of Intel's entrepreneurship efforts. He's ran uh, their efforts there. He interviewed you. He sought you out. He heard about your work. I'd love to share a little bit about him. And the other was Samsung and their investment, their idea as manager, as entrepreneurs, and this leading to businesses and spin outs such as TagHive. Perhaps you'll give us an overview of this. Sure. Uh, and if, if you don't mind, I'll go in reverse order. So um, the point here is that 
you have examples of intrapreneurs who made a difference, you know, that they took action themselves and the result was, say, 3M's Post-it Notes or um, Sony's PlayStation, this sort of thing. But, you know, to make sure that these are not just happy accidents, what companies are increasingly doing, as many of your readers will know, is trying to systematize the process. And uh, Samsung, I think, has a very good um, program whereby uh, they encourage people who have ideas to pitch and the ones that get selected, uh, you know, are then given time off. My understanding is that sort of typically is in six-month blocks, um, at least when I was speaking to people at, at Samsung. And so, you know, the, they are given uh, some time off to work on this after six months. Their progress is uh, reviewed. And then if things are going well, then they get more time. Uh, and about the 18-month stage, uh, if if they have a prototype that's actually interesting and worth uh, displaying, they get taken to Las Vegas uh, and are part of the Samsung booth at CES. And then, uh, you know, at the two-year mark, typically they are sort of spun off. And one of the examples I came across is a startup called Tag Hive, which also got investment from Samsung Ventures, and um, they were... Uh, they have uh, a representation on the board of, of the company. Now, of course, not every uh, in the, not every project will have this start to finish happy uh, kind of progress and a happy ending. In fact, I think just like startups, the majority of these projects will fail. And so, actually, what's very important is having a path, a career pathway for these people to come back into the company and for that experience to still be valued. Uh, so I think what Samsung is doing is very interesting. It's also an example of a top-down initiative. It's the corporate office at Samsung coming up with this initiative. But then you have the other example you mentioned, which is Intel in China. And I think what's interesting there is this was not something that uh, came down from on high, uh, as in from the Intel, a global corporate office. This is something that got developed in relative terms in a bottom-up way because we're talking about a subsidiary, uh, Intel China. So around 2015, uh, they were thinking about how they can encourage more entrepreneurship. Of course, Intel uh, missed the bus when it came to, um, or missed the boat rather, came when it came to um, uh, the mobile internet. You know, they're very dominant in the PC era and perhaps uh, you know, that was a, a, a motivator to see how they could be not only more entrepreneurial, but tap into the talent and energy of uh, engineers wherever they are in the world. You know, so that also takes some humility, especially for Silicon Valley companies to recognize that there could be great ideas uh, in their task force uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, and so... Um, this was something that then was entrusted to Kapil Kane, who has a very interesting background. Uh, he uh, studied at Stanford, dropped out of a PhD program after his master's uh, to join Apple. Uh, he was part of, uh, uh, I think, the tablet team. He ended up moving with Apple to China and then was hired by Intel and ended up he heading up the um, intrapreneurship program there. But you know, when he was he was asked to do something to foster innovation, and then 
uh, our paths crossed because he had an intern who was one of my MBA students. And after one of my lectures, he said to Kapil, oh, you need to talk to this professor. And so we had lunch together. Uh, and uh, I shared with him this notion of intrapreneurship. And he felt it was like a eureka moment and framed what he was doing there in terms of intrapreneurship. Uh, but but just to to add, you know, a uh, couple of things to what he did. One was to then borrow ideas from the world of startups, the lean startup method and so on, to be able to structure what they were doing with the uh, intrapreneurial teams. And I think uh, for people on the outside to startups, this might sound just so obvious and so on. But I mean, at that point in time, it was new knowledge in the company and they found it helpful to have these kinds of more systematic ways to think through what they were doing, mainly with the effect that it helped engineers stop thinking from a technology perspective alone to adopt a market uh, perspective. Uh, the other thing to say is that over time, what he discovered was it didn't have to be exclusively about intrapreneurship. There could also be a role to, uh, for external startups uh, to facilitate what he was doing. So the general idea was that any highly promising project that came out of this uh, initiative would then get adopted by one of the Intel business units and they would take it to market. But he actually came across a startup in Hangzhou, the same city where Alibaba is headquartered, uh, that was very relevant to one of the projects that was being developed using uh, Intel's camera technology uh, for smart doors. And there was a startup in, in, in Hangzhou that was exactly in this space. And they ended up working together and went to market in three months, whereas the estimate to do this through an internal BU was nine. Shamin, I, I wanted to emphasize something here because you mentioned Kapil there and his seeking you out. And, and this shows the mindset of these type of individuals. And oftentimes, they're considered a bit haphazard, and a bit crazy and trying to communicate with them is like drinking water from a hose pipe, because they they lack, they have the brilliant thinking, but they lack the articulation of that. And what I find, and I wanted to commend you on this, the work that you've done has given people a language, but also it validates that they're on the right path because instinctively they know a lot of that. So this show and the people who listen to it want to just tip the hat to you as well because that's what the work you've done does. It validates. And I often say to people working in corporations, if you want to get your boss's attention, no man or woman's a prophet in their own land. You need some outside external resource to go, look, read this paper or read this book, all the research has been done. We have to we have to be doing this. Otherwise, we're going to enter into the hall of toast. So I, I just wanted to say that but we've talked about two things so far. We've talked about managers versus entrepreneurs and the distinction there we talked about managers as entrepreneurs just now. But some entrepreneurs look outward to engage with external startups, resulting in a third perspective that you add in the book. And this is managers with entrepreneurs. And I loved how you said this, you said corporate startups partnering can be viewed as a division of entrepreneurial labor between the corporation and the startup. And you introduce here 
a, a figure, figure 1.2, that I'm going to share on the screen, if that's okay with you. And perhaps we'll use that as a way for you to tell our audience about this. Actually, these three aspects of proactiveness, innovativeness, and risk-taking, I'd been, I made uh, reference to earlier as key dimensions of entrepreneurial behavior. And so the idea here is that managers can uh, engage with entrepreneurs. Kapil Kane got a feel for that with that project where one of the um, internal teams actually could move faster when they engage with a startup. Uh, and a lot of companies, um, including Microsoft, the, in the previous part that we uh, discussed in some detail, you have managers whose intrapreneurship for the company takes the form of pointing the company uh, to entrepreneurs on the outside. Uh, and what they're able to do when managers and entrepreneurs come together is that they're able to combine aspects of their entrepreneurial behavior in which they are especially good. Now, earlier we made the distinction about exploitation and exploration and said that in general, managers and big companies are good at exploitation. Well, the startups are good at exploration. So take proactiveness. Uh, you know, the, the proactiveness with which the, um, the established company is exploiting what it's doing, exploiting an existing market, can go hand in hand with the exploration of the startup. Thus, a startup that has uh, new uh, technology around digital marketing can work uh, with mutual benefit alongside a big company who is extremely good at engaging with their existing market, but of course, uh, doesn't necessarily have the digital expertise. You know, that's just a simple example. But, but that's how the, the proactiveness uh, can be sort of shared, if you will. Uh, the innovativeness as well, again, the exploitation, um, just, uh, you know, at the risk of exaggeration, you know, a lot of this is about the downstream, doing the marketing, the sales, the distribution really well. Exploration, you know, you have a lot of the uh, upstream innovation and, again, combining these. Uh, and then when you're working together, uh, it allows you to take risks because the other side is compensating for your deficiency, you know, the lack of flexibility in the case of the big company and the lack of, say, legitimacy on, in the case of the startup. And so what you're seeing here is we're not saying that, oh, you have the entrepreneurial startup and this terrible big company. We're saying that the big company and the managers here are also demonstrating entrepreneurial behavior, but they're playing to their strengths and allowing the startup to play to their strengths. And together you have this division of labor, you know, and this term division of entrepreneurial labor came out of a, a chance encounter uh, at one of the academic conferences, I had organized a panel about this idea that large multinationals could engage with startups. And I invited this renowned international business professor from Leeds, Peter Buckley, to be a discussant. And in his comments, he said, you know, of course, there can be a division of entrepreneurial labor between uh, multinationals and startups. And so afterwards, at the end of the conference, there was a reception and I made a beeline for him. And I said, Peter, that just sounded great. Now we should figure out what that actually means. <laughs> uh, and uh, we uh, wrote a, 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 an academic paper, which you have uh, 
kindly cited at the bottom of the table. Uh, and so we, we that, that's basically the, the idea here. So, you know, overall, it's about there can be a win-win. Uh, but, you know, uh, to understand this, to conceptualize this um, in a way that highlights that this is still about entrepreneurial behavior on both sides, I think is, is important. And, and I actually, my first academic job after my PhD at Strathclyde University was at Glasgow University where Adam Smith famously came up with this notion of division of labor. So uh, I'm rather fond of that. Uh. <laughs> nice. It's like, it's, like the, it's like the title, the way that that emerged as well. It's nice having those little moments in your book as well. So you've stamped a moment in history. So well done. I, I, um, I wanted to just say on that because uh, the the whole idea here is, again, if, if I think about the entrepreneur, so somebody within an organization who instinctively knows what to do, oftentimes, they won't even think about articulating the division of labor of who does what and what everybody's good at, etc. But it's vitally important. It's actually like running a good meeting. And at the end, kind of going, okay, Shamin, you're going to look after this, you're going to deliver it by this time. Aiden, you're going to do this, Mary, you're going to do this. That I, I see that as what we're doing here. And it's one of the things that drives me with this show, Shamin, is to give people the information. Oftentimes, CEOs are so busy in organizations that they don't know what to do because they don't have the time to even research it. And if we can give them the information, go, look, Shamin did all the research, Aiden and Shamin had a chat, and hopefully we've distilled it down into a way that's meaningful. So it gives you the articulation of that. I think that's a noble cause. And it absolutely drives me and why I'm so delighted to have you on the show. And I wanted to just bring it to a step further, because you cite some of the examples that you studied in the book beyond Microsoft. And you say many of the corporations that you studied, such as BMW and SAP, for example, did have their own corporate venture capital arms. However, the startup partnering efforts that you did study, such as BMW Startup Garage, or SAP Startup Focus, since replaced by other initiatives you mentioned, were devoid of equity investment. Through these initiatives, the companies engaged with a wider pool of startups than a CVC team typically would, which gave them the flexibility to include some early stage startups than those that a CVC unit would typically invest in. I'd love to explore that because this brings it a, a little step further for those people who may be a bit more further down the stream, a bit more involved in this who understand it better. This shows, okay, so you've got your house in order, you've got your entrepreneurial division of labor. What's next? Here's an example. Great question. So, uh, you know, actually, th this idea of corporate venture capital has been around for a while, big companies taking say 10 to 15% stakes in startups, they may get a seat on the board. Um, and this is often portrayed as a very useful way in which big companies can get a window into newly emergent technologies and so on. Uh, and I actually think that's a very important uh, tool in the corporate innovation toolkit. My work has primarily been about non-equity uh, partnering. Uh, and uh, one of the major differences I've, seen, uh, I've noticed is in the nature of the startup that is engaged with in these two ways. Uh, now, over time, there may be some blurring of the of the boundaries uh, in terms of what I'm about to say. But but typically, what I found was that 
corporate venture capital folks were interested in very mature startups and they'd come in with series B or later. Whereas these examples that I had, there were in many cases startups that were six months old. Uh, over time, some of these companies said, okay, we, we need to have startups that are a little mature. Uh, they should at least have a series A round of funding. But, but in general, I actually found that these people, these two sets of initiatives were dealing with different uh, types of startups. Um, now, of course, in theory, you can have startups that are part of these non-equity partnering programs uh, that eventually become part of the funnel that uh, the corporate venture capital people uh, consider, uh, although that's not an automatic process, but, but that's a theoretical possibility. But, but the great thing about non-equity partnering is, as you um, mentioned, you actually have a larger pool of startups to look at. And, you know, um, if you look at the number of CVC deals that actually uh, get done, uh, we're, we're talking about a relatively small number game. And, you know, these can be extremely valuable. Uh, but when it comes to uh, non-equity startup partnering, you know, it's, uh, you know, often a magnitude of 10, say. Uh, and... Uh, so I think that has its, its uh, value plus, uh, and there are different views on this, but I have found some entrepreneurs favorably disposed towards these non-equity programs because they feel they don't have to be diluted in the process. Now, there'll be some startups who say, it's only if I get investment from a big company that I feel that they're truly committed. So, you know, I mean, um, and, and, but there's still a stage of life cycle difference, I think, between where these things come into play. And, and let me just also add, I have, in the course of my research, uh, met people that I, I regard very highly that are featured prominently in the book who actually take a position, which is intrapreneurship programs don't make sense. It's much better to engage with external startups or corporate venture capital is pointless. Uh, you know, it's much better to work with startups and make them a vendor um, that's not my view, uh, you know, uh, I suppose as a, a, in general, my position with all of this has been as a neutral academic, I don't have an ax to grind. I didn't have consulting engagements with, with, with any of these companies. And, and you've made me feel very good actually in the show by saying it's, it's valuable to articulate these things and validate what, what people are doing. So I, I just think these things have, have, have a different role. I, yes, I think managers as entrepreneurs. I think that's a good idea. It's not going to apply to everybody in the company. It's going to be a relatively small minority, but identify them, nurture them, help them. Uh, I think, uh, you know, investing in startups can be valuable, but, but my focus has been on this non-equity partnering, which gives uh, companies, I think, a fairly broad uh, landscape in which to operate. And I wanted to bring it one step further, because we see this, you mentioned innovation theater. But also then there's, oh, we need a presence in the valley, we need a corporate outpost and innovation lab. And their organization does put its money where its mouth is, but it doesn't put its real commitment there. So it tries to throw money at the problem, perhaps it's got a, a dictate from the board to go, we need to be more innovative. And the CEO thinks to herself, oh, Let's put a lab out in in Silicon Valley near the action, 
And you raised the concern about this. You say with regards, for example, to SAP startup focus, the big concern is that the absence of boundary spanners, these individuals called boundary spanners like Kapil Kane, when such innovations and such initiatives are located away from the HQ, away from the mothership, and mainstream business units, they have little tangible effect on the organization. So they may be innovating over there in sector 7g way out of sight, but it's having no impact on changing the mindset in the organization, making it more entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, it's not having any effect there. And this relates to a recent episode that we had with Ismail Amla, where we talked about this up to 90% of corporate innovation outposts fail. And this is one of the core reasons. Absolutely. And I think, uh, again, uh, you know, one of the things that I uh, re realized in the course of my research is we talk about corporates partnering with startups, but it comes down to people. And, and that's partly, I think, also what's behind those three ideas of manager versus entrepreneur manager as entrepreneur manager with entrepreneur it's about people and the people who manage these partnerships on behalf of the corporations they are extremely important and that's something i will say again uh, when we discuss the how um and their in the, their role of being a bridge between the startup and the rest of the organization is absolutely critical uh, and it actually speaks to something that I think we are, we're going to go on to talk to uh, talk ab about uh, in this episode itself, which is about the sheer differences. So, you know, you have these startups, which are often basically single unit entities, and then you have these large corporates, which are multi-unit entities. Uh, and you have managers within the company that are engaging with the startups. But very often, meaningful things happen for the startup with the big company if other people in business units uh, and so on, actually engage with the startup. And so this boundary spanning role is really not merely about linking the startup with the company per se, but the startup with relevant entities within the big company. Uh, and when that doesn't happen, then you end up with very little to show for the efforts. And I think that's part of the problem with the innovation outpost, because the, the, the boundary spanners have uh, boundaries to span along with distance and you know out of sight out of mind can be uh, can be quite problematic so again but it, it comes down to how entrepreneur you know being a good boundary spanner is also about being entrepreneurial it's about being proactive it's about being innovative and taking risks in bridging the startup with relevant entities within uh, the big company you mentioned there even the proximity challenge, but even time zone challenges. I mean, even us trying to engage here, you're over in China, it's difficult. And it wears people down. Because if you have to continually interrupt your own private life in order to get the job done, it, it wears people down, and they give up on it as well. And that's a, a huge challenge that I see that's often not have a light shone on it, but it's it's really important. Before we go on to the asymmetries, the differences and the challenges between uh, startup partnering. And, and I want to say as well, Shamin is by no means Pollyanna-ish about this at all. So you're very, very clear on saying, this is really hard work. This is a discipline. And I think that's the thing that 
I hope to do with the show as well as though innovate innovation is the same thing. It's discipline. It's not a just a random trying things. That's part of it. But it needs a discipline if it's going to actually succeed in the first place. But as you noted, earlier on, there's a division of labor, entrepreneurial labor, and collaborating on complementary strengths for mutual benefit, for example, but each partner has strengths that the others lacks. And this can lead to three interrelated benefits, legitimacy, learning, and leads. And again, I'm going to share one of the graphs from the book so people can actually see it and see what we're talking about here. One of the most fascinating startups I came across uh, in terms of its ability to dance with gorillas is a startup in, uh, or it was a startup when I studied it in Beijing called Testin. Uh, and in 2012, so they were founded in 2011. In, in 2012, uh, Microsoft had its um, opened a, an accelerator in Beijing. They were in one of the first cohorts. They also partnered with IBM at the time. And then they forged relationships with Intel and ARM. So what Testin does is they, they were providing testing services for mobile apps. And they figured that they needed to uh, engage with the, the companies behind the semiconductors, ARM, of course, being particularly important. Uh, that took some effort. They, they forged a relationship. And then they had relationships with a whole bunch of other large companies um, including Chinese big companies, and they were engaging with the developer communities. And as I started analyzing what they were doing and the benefits they were getting out of this, I realized that those initial couple of relationships with Microsoft and IBM, legitimacy was a big part of the benefit. It was credibility by association. Uh, you know, uh, investors were beginning to take them more seriously as an alum of the Microsoft Accelerator. When it came to Intel and ARM, learning was very important. They were getting uh, a sense of the uh, technical uh, specific, uh, specifications, a sense of the technology roadmap, helping them to uh, fine-tune their offering. And then when it came to these other companies to whom they were ac accessing the developer communities, they were getting leads. They were getting new business opportunities. Uh, and so you could see that Big companies can be a source of very important benefits to startups. But then, as I kept uh, studying the big companies that were increasingly uh, taking startup partnering seriously, I realized that actually these benefits apply for them too, maybe uh, in slightly different ways. But they too get new leads, they get new business opportunities because, for example, they're, they're able to bundle something that a software a startup is doing with their offering or they're able to do better, do more as a result of the startup's uh, input. They uh, are able to learn new things from uh, the startups as well and get access to uh, new ideas for more traditional companies, very obviously in the area of digitalization. Uh, but surprisingly, these big companies also get legitimacy if they seem to be doing well with startups. They are, of course, well-known companies with strong reputations. But in terms of engaging with startups, now big companies, I think, are recognizing that they are competing with other big companies for the hearts and minds of uh, the most talented startups. They want to be seen as a partner of choice. They don't want to be seen as the 
as the terrible gorilla uh, that you could get trampled by if you uh, were dancing with them. And so I think there are, in that sense, legitimacy benefits for the big company too. It reminded me, Shemaine, you would have seen this when you were in Glasgow, in Scotland as well, is um, the the show Dragons, uh, uh, The Dragon's Den. <laughs> and I often think of The Dragon's Den is the dragons are the, the big corporations and yeah. the entrepreneurs coming on are the startups. And because you often see the very clever entrepreneurs will try to win the hearts and mind of a certain dragon because they offer certain yes. certain channels to market or as you say, they can exploit while the entrepreneur explores and it's it's actually this nice mind melt of of what is actually here. Because as this becomes more mainstream as it is becoming where organizations are realizing this is a huge value to us as an organization for the future. So are the entrepreneurs and the startups. So they're actually looking for these symmetries as well. So anyway, that, that just came to mind as a way to very nicely said exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. So but but it does lead to another question. And perhaps the last thing we'll lead to we'll talk about today, which is the differences. So no, I'm not going to go with Aidan McCullen, because actually, he I heard his culture is not a great fit for me or whatever it might be, becomes an important question for a startup, you don't just chase the money. And likewise, for the organization, you don't just chase what the startup can offer the organization or, as you cover in the book, and we'll cover in time, the world, because oftentimes these partnerships can lead to a better world for everybody as well, sustainability, etc. So over to you, perhaps to give an overview of the asymmetries that can exist. Absolutely. So, you know, the idea that you can have this division of entrepreneurial labor that both sides get benefits and so on. Um, one has the agility, the other has the scale. You know, actually, all of this suggests that this is a, a marriage, uh, a match made in heaven. Uh, but if it was also hunky dory, uh, I don't think you'd have uh, the kind of audience you have um, for your show, uh, for innovation in general, and uh, for corporate startup partner in particular, we wouldn't need this book. So here's the, the paradox, um, and, and I call it the paradox of asymmetry. The very differences that make it attractive for big companies and startups to work together also make it challenging. And so I think it's, it's kind of a, a bittersweet note on which to end the discussion of why. There are, <laughs> there are very good reasons for big companies to be more entrepreneurial and to consider engaging with startups as one way to do that. But you've got to go into this very clear about the fact that it ain't easy. So you have asymmetries of, of uh, many types. I, I focus on three, the asymmetry of goals. Big companies and startups want different things and very crucially at different timescales. The asymmetry of structure. I think we've already alluded to this in our discussion, some of the examples. Uh, big companies are very hierarchical, have, have very complex structures startups very often, single units, and it's very difficult to find role counterparts, uh, which is important for collaboration. And finally, you have what I call the asymmetry of attention, by which I mean 
the big company sees an ocean of startups out there and aren't clear about which startups are worthy of their limited managerial attention. The startups know who the big companies are, but they struggle to get the attention of the people that matter. Uh, and so this becomes important to recognize that uh, whilst there is this conceptual possibility of a division of entrepreneurial labor, the very drivers of that possibility, the different strengths that they have and the different characteristics, also bring with it a major challenge in, in the sense that uh, there are asymmetry of goals, structure, and attention. I was trying to pull a quote to finish today to leave people inspired to join us again for part three, because you do quote Dave Drock, who's uh, one of the members of the exec team in Techstars, and there's a brilliant quote that you mentioned by him. He said, when large companies started to work with startups, people initially thought this whole startup thing was just a trend. And that is absolutely true. We've both witnessed that. I don't think it's a trend at all. It's a fundamental transformation in the way that business innovation occurs. And I think that absolutely speaks to what we're trying to achieve with this show and what you have achieved with your book as well. Uh, Shamin. Shamin, for people who want to reach out and find you, where can they find you those people who may have missed us saying this in episode one? That's an absolutely fantastic uh, quote, Aiden, because what that shows is that many companies have chosen to not walk away, despite these asymmetries, and have found ways in which to address these. Uh, and that, of course, is very much at the heart of the how, which we will talk about uh, the next time. Author of Gorillas Can Dance, Lessons from Microsoft and Other Corporations on Partnering with Startups, Shamin Prashantham, thank you for joining us for episode two, and I look forward to episode three. Thank you so much, Aidan. Nice one, man. <laughs> Brilliant. I really hope you're enjoying these episodes, these extra episodes that we're able to bring you thanks to our partner Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check them out at hellozai.com supporting them supports us. And don't forget, sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter, you will be with a chance to win this magnificent book by Shamin Prashantham. See you next week for episode three.